I absolutely loved those choice of songs and the piano and the singing were a tremendous delight. Thank you so much. Uh, those songs lift me up. Today we have been in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, and we looked at the first half of the chapter this morning, and we're going to look at the second half of the chapter tonight. These are some of the most important words to Jesus' disciples possible, because it's this night that he is going to be betrayed. And so he has very little time to equip them for the task ahead during this church age. And so we, as the new believers uh, prophesied as uh, being added to the church, should listen very carefully to his exhortations. These would be some of his most important exhortations. And this morning we saw that it's crucial that we abide in Christ because his intention is that we bear much fruit. The way in which we will abide in him if you lowered it down to the lowest common denominator, it is that we are to abide in his love. We're to be receptive to the way in which he loves us, which he says would require us to obey his commands. For him to love us requires that we are responsive to him by loving him in return, and the way in which we show our love with, for him is largely obeying his commands. We said this morning these commands are not burdensome, and in fact they fill us with the joy of the Lord. He gives us his joy because he is loving us and we're abiding in him and following after him. Now in the second part of this address, he first speaks of the relationship of believers to each other, then the relationship of believers to the world, and then finally mentions the coming of the Holy Spirit. So let's look then at what he teaches us regarding how we should treat each other. This is John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than he lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends, for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. We are not unfamiliar with this teaching. We realize that even if you were to summarize the entire Old Testament, it would be to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbors as yourselves. And so we don't find any surprise at all that a central command for, from him for us to be able to abide in his love and to abide in him and to bear much fruit 
is to allow the love that he pours into us to flow through us like a channel to minister to one another. And you might wonder, why, if his time is so precious, and we've known this kind of teaching before, would he take the time to develop it here? Because there's a problem in the room right now during the Passover supper. They had gathered for the purpose of remembering the Passover. While they were going through the memory of the Passover, which speaks of a sacrificial lamb, which Jesus actually was called, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The disciples are thinking past what he's saying, imagining him setting up his kingdom, imagining what place they will have in his kingdom. Will I govern a state? Will I be a county supervisor? Will I be a mayor of a large town? What kind of role will I have in his kingdom? And in fact, they're actually arguing among themselves as to which one of them is the greatest. Look at the Lucan account at uh, this Last Supper. And so it's absolutely essential that they get their minds off themselves and back on the central purpose of demonstrating Christ's work in our hearts by demonstrating love one to another, first as disciples and then showing the love of God to other unbelievers around the world. In order to get their attention, he did a shocking thing in which he stripped for work, got down on his knees, and began to wash each of the disciples' feet. There's 12 of them, so you can imagine they're watching him go to each one of them, and each one of them felt uh, completely uncomfortable and felt uh, embarrassed at the thought of this. And yet none of them was willing to uh, forbid him uh, to wash his feet, except for the Apostle Peter, the outspoken one, who says, never shall you wash my feet. Now, you know why. Uh, Jesus even explains why. He is their Lord and Master, their teacher. It doesn't seem right, since he is so important, that he would humble himself so greatly and do what only a servant would do. In their culture, where they, where they wore sandals and had already bathed but would get their feet dirty as they walked about, it was most common that you would wash your own feet. Occasionally, uh, you'd have a servant who would wash your feet. Sometimes you'd have your kids wash your feet, especially, I suppose, if you were so old you had trouble reaching your feet. But to have your Lord and Master, your teacher, stripped for work on his hands and knees, washing your feet, is to teach a gigantic lesson, and that is that he loves us so much that tonight he'll be arrested and tomorrow he'll be crucified. He will take our place on the cross. He will pay our penalty of sin for us, and through that, enable the Father to forgive our sins and give us eternal life in relationship with him forever. In some ways, the washing of their feet is picturing the level of humility he's willing to go to in order to minister to them and their need. That's why he says, the moment in verse 12 where he says, love one another as I've loved you, but the greatest kind of love would be that you be willing to lay down your life for one another. And surely, tomorrow, that's what they're going to see. He will be laying down his life as a sacrifice for them.
One of my sons uh, dated a nice young lady uh, briefly, uh, and then they decided they'd uh, look elsewhere. And she soon after came down with leukemia. Uh, we were horrified to hear it. She uh, suffered uh, greatly. And there came a point, I knew her father through business contacts, uh, where her father sent out the word, she needs a bone marrow transplant. And so I actually called him up and I said, uh, can my wife and I be tested? And he said, no, I'm sorry, you're too old, which is sad to think that my bone marrow is not any longer attractive. He says, we're looking for students more her age, the college students she studied with. Uh, you could have your sons volunteer if they like, or you could speak to the other Biola students about getting tested. It's interesting uh, that the bone marrow that we have in our bodies, uh, largely inside of our bones, and for example in our hips would be one large place of it, can be used to treat 70 different diseases. And unfortunately, though most of the family members volunteer to be tested, 70% of them are not a match for the family member that needs the bone marrow. And consequently, they have to go to a registry of people who are willing to give bone marrow to a stranger. That doesn't motivate most of us. If it was our nephew, our niece, a cousin, a brother or sister, all of us, I think, would volunteer to go through the bone marrow transplant uh, protocol. But if it's someone we don't know, we say to ourselves, I, I, it just doesn't seem that immediate. Colonel, I like to watch the news, and we watched on the news recently uh, a young man, uh, yes, in his early 20s, who had a relative uh, who needed a transplant, and so he got tested and put his uh, results into the National Registry. And it turned out that he was not a match for his relative. And yet he said, no, leave my results in there. I want to donate to whomever needs it. And immediately they found a match with a little girl, uh, not even school age yet, uh, who was dying of leukemia and desperately needed his bone marrow. And so uh, he gave it to her. And on the news program, as you've seen them sometimes do, they bring the two of them together to meet each other for the very first time. And it was precious to see her run up to him and hug him. It was precious to see his love for someone he doesn't even know. Now, the interesting thing for us is we're told that we need to love our brothers and sisters in Christ the way in which the Lord loves us. And sometimes it's easier to love a person in the abstract whom we've never even met yet than someone that we consider irritating to us. To dwell above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with saints we know, well, that's another story. And it causes us to hesitate and say, I'm not sure I like this other person, much less have the capability of loving them. And so, uh, using the example of washing their feet, uh, the Lord says to his disciples, if I, your teacher, were willing to love you in this way, I want you to be willing to love each other in this way. 
And this causes a number of us to say, well, you mean we should hold foot washing meetings? Uh, the early church practiced uh, foot washing occasionally and briefly, but did not continue it. And that's why, largely, the Christian church today uh, does not practice it as an ordinance. Uh, they came to see that the issue is more symbolic of the need to humble oneself sacrificially and meet that person's real needs. And it does hurt our feelings to think that we would humble ourselves for someone for whom we do not care much. But humility recognizes no task that's beneath us to do for Christ's sake. If Christ had specifically asked us, would you please wash this person's feet, would you do it? And we'd say, well, of course, because Christ spoke to me, and Christ pointed out the person, and therefore, because he asked me, I would do it. But here's the interesting thing. He has asked us, generally speaking, to live in relationship with one another, where we would always be willing to humble ourselves, because no task is beneath us to do for Christ's sake. If you start thinking of the unlovely tasks or the unattractive tasks, uh, think of some major event uh, here at the chapel, for example, and think about how many people come together to bring that event into uh, fruition. And then notice how many people have to hang around to clean up after the event. One of the interesting things about us in human nature is we're willing to volunteer for important jobs, but we're not very quick to volunteer for what we would consider unimportant jobs that any old person could do, such as setting up tables, setting up chairs, tearing down tables, tearing down chairs, vacuuming the carpet. These are all things that we kind of think like, well, I have more important things to do. And one of the things I have noticed is uh, at our local assembly, as we're going about these kinds of activities, as to who it is that finds people to talk to so that we look engaged with each other, so that as people are vacuuming all around our feet and as people are tearing down tables and moving chairs around us, we look very important in the conversation that we're having. Instead, our eyes should be up, our eyes should be looking around, our eyes should be searching for people who need us. At age 17, I volunteered to work at a Christian camp the entire summer. And as we were going through training, one of the older counselors who was more experienced said, there are always people who hang off in the fringes and don't want to get involved. I exhort us to look for those campers on the fringes and go and get them and bring them into the involvement of the activity that we're in. And that's very true in any gathering. And it causes us to say to ourselves, am I open to find needy people and to encourage them and to strengthen them and to build them up in the things of the Lord? Because humility requires thinking of others more highly than of ourselves. That's what Jesus did when he became a man. He humbled himself to join us as a member of our race to live a perfect life, and then to give himself as a sacrifice requiring his death. 
That meant he prioritized our needs above his own. And he humbled himself, even holding back the independent exercise of his attributes uh, in order to live life as a human being, still possessing all the attributes of God, but not turning stones into bread, for example, willing to live a humble life like one of us. Humility requires us to get our focus off of our rights and our needs and start thinking about other people's needs and say, no, I shouldn't be prioritizing what I need or what my right is. I should be prioritizing what another person's needs might be. Jesus told a very interesting example about where to sit at a table. And he said, don't be too quick to sit down because the host might decide you're sitting in a place that's been reserved for a person of honor. I'm going to have to get, make you get up and move to a less important spot and bring that person up to the spot that I wanted him to sit. And I noticed it. Uh, our big Christmas parties with all of our family or uh, our Thanksgiving dinners, there, there was a very interesting order of where people sat. And for much of my life, I was in the kitty table out in the living room as opposed to in with the adults. It wasn't until I married Carol that I, just like that, became an adult and was able to go to the adult table. If we are quick to assert our rights, we may have to be humbled by the Lord in order for us to exalt someone who needs to be exalted. At work, when they have these uh, awards given to employees that uh, have performed in an excellent manner, have you ever thought to yourself like, that employee doesn't deserve that recognition? It should be someone like me. I deserve that recognition. What is it about us that we say to ourselves, someone should recognize me when actually we should be taking our thoughts off of ourselves and placing them on ministering to the other person? And just the thought of someone getting down in front of me and literally washing my feet causes me to understand I have to be much more receiving and not just giving. In other words, some of the times the way in which people are blessed is by reaching out and blessing me. And sometimes you have this thought of saying, well, yeah, I don't really need that. You don't have to do that for me, uh, no matter at all. And you realize, no, it's important for me to receive the ministry of another person, the help of another person. There's something strange about me where I say, well, I can do it myself. I don't need anybody's help. It's a silly thing about me. Even with very heavy objects, I somehow think I can move the heavy object by myself. With a ham radio antenna once, one that was bigger than our house, <clears throat> my wife and I had it halfway up at a 45-degree angle, and the neighbor from behind saw us struggling and seeing it about ready to crash and came running across and said, let me help you too. I can remember one time when we were trying to move the swing set for a birthday party, just my wife and me, and the two of us, if you can imagine this, had picked up the swing set over our heads like this and were walking from the backyard to the front yard and had to cross a fence, which meant that we had to lift it up and get it over the fence. And you say to yourself, what's wrong with us where we keep thinking, I don't need anybody's help? Humility requires us to receive as well as giving. And then I think we ought to also just think about what took place during that foot washing and what was the symbolism. He was saying, 
you are completely clean because I have forgiven you. And yet, there is a family-level forgiveness that also needs to be done. He says, you don't need to be bathed all over like Peter first requested. He says, all you need is your feet washed. And it appears that he means this repetitively, just like having already bathed, you don't need to bathe again. You just, if you get your feet dirty, you need to wash your feet alone. It's as if he's saying, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As believers, we need regular forgiveness. He doesn't kick us out of the family of God, but for the family relationship, we need to remove that impediment of the harm that we've caused. So if Jesus is at the feet of his disciples, teaching them about forgiveness and cleansing, and even refreshing them in some way through his humble service, then the way in which we will show love to our brothers and sisters in Christ is also going to require, if there's an impediment between us, some level of forgiveness, some level of cleansing, uh, some level of humility as we seek to refresh them by the ministry that we are doing for them. Secondly, in uh, this first paragraph in the second half of the book, when he speaks in verse 14 about being his friends, he says, I don't call you a servant any longer. Servants are never told what the master is planning. They're just told what it is they're supposed to do. They'll even know the big plan. But you are more than a servant to me. You are my friends. In fact, when he says, I'll lay down my life, he says, I'll lay down my life for my friends. And this is an amazing welcoming of intimacy in relationship with Jesus. He is our God. He is our Savior. And yet he invites us to call him friend. Amazing. I heard on the radio this week that a little girl came home from kindergarten and announced to her mother that they have forbidden so-called best friends at her kindergarten because that would be exclusive. If you had picked someone to be a best friend, then everyone else would not be. And I thought, like, this is very strange uh, that we are changing to the point where you can't even develop very close relationships with someone for fear that that someone thinks that uh, an exclusion is taking place. He is asking us to be a friend to him by being a friend to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we don't think of them so much as strangers. We don't think of them so much as people who attend our church meetings. We think of them as friends of ours, and we relate to them in such a friendly manner. He goes on to say in verse 16, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And what he's saying here is most disciples, as they followed someone, picked a particular mentor uh, that they wanted to be mentored by. And so they voluntarily would ask, can I be uh, a mentee to you? And you will notice that he is saying, I picked you because I had a plan for you and I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and this fruit would be fruit that remains. And so I'm asking you to go about the task that I have for you 
in exemplifying love to others, seeing people come to a saving knowledge of others, and bearing fruit that remains. The fruit could be evangelistic, the fruit could be the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and the like. But he's saying you won't be able to do this on your own. You're going to need the empowerment of God himself. So I'm asking you to speak to my Father using my name, and he will give you whatever you ask. Whatever you need to accomplish the task that I've assigned to you, just ask. Now remember I was telling you part of the fault of my personality is I try not to ask. I try to just solve it on my own, which is foolish actually, and that's why I'm bringing this up because there might be more of you who are too stubbornly independent like this. And we would say, no, I need to ask for help. In the problems we face during the day, do you ever get like a third of the way through the day and you say the problems are becoming overwhelming? These are hard, hard problems. It happens to me regularly, and I say to myself, have I even talked to the Lord about this? Have I brought these problems to the Lord? And the, the answer is, no, I was uh, facing them somewhat in my own strength. I need to give these over to the Lord and ask for his wisdom and his empowerment and his leading. And then he repeats, these things I command you, that you love one another. Then he turns to his second thought in this passage, which is how we would relate to unbelievers in the world. And he says, generally, it's going to be difficult because they will be opposed to you largely because they are being dominated by the God of this world, Satan. And the whole world system is opposed to God and to you as followers of me. John 15, 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Interestingly, as he develops this concept, he's saying in prayer to the Father in John 17 that his plan is for us to be in the world as far as its location, but not of the world as far as its influence on us. We're to be his witnesses, telling the truth about who he is and what he has done so people can know how it is to be saved. So he wants us to be witnesses, but not to let the world system draw us away from him. He says, verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master? If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. And this should cause us to realize, even though people hate us for what we stand for, it's not so much a personal thing. And sometimes it helps if we realize, oh, the hatred isn't so much aimed to me as a person. It's aimed to the truth of what Jesus Christ teaches. And as I stand up for the truth, they're hating the truth that has been revealed by Jesus. It helps me to understand that my role is to be his witness. Otherwise, he'd just take us to be home with him. There's no reason for us to be here, largely, if it weren't to be his witnesses. And he uses our activities during this age in order to evaluate us for the purpose of reward, which is to rule and reign in his kingdom when he sets it up here on earth for a thousand years. Since they persecuted him, they will persecute us. He then goes on to say, but if they've kept my word, 
they will keep yours also. So if they truly know the Father, if they are genuine believers, then they will follow your leadership, and you can teach them the truth. Verse 21, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they don't know him who sent me. If you remember the religious leaders, they were constantly saying, well, we know the Father, we don't know you. And Jesus was saying, if you were a person who followed my Father, and if you knew my Father, you would recognize my voice as coming from his. Because you don't recognize me means that you don't know God the Father, the one you say you serve. And consequently, as we teach the truth, the truth reproves them, and they grate against God's commandments as to what is right and wrong. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. What he means in context is they might have some excuse to say, I didn't know this was wrong. But because he has come and because he has revealed the truth and because he has clearly explained to us what pleases him and what doesn't, now they have no excuse. They know what they're doing is wrong. But our culture today in America and much of uh, uh, the world is that they don't merely want us to tolerate them. They want us to actually cheer them on and to say what they are doing, which we know to be extremely sinful according to the word of God, is just as valuable and just as true is the obedience that we show to the Father. And it is not true at all. If you look at Romans 1, for example, they knew the truth and decided to quell and push down the truth hide it so that they could lie to themselves and so that they could say what they're doing is right. They don't have any excuse for their sin, he says. He who hates me hates my father also. If I would not done among them the works which no one else did, they'd have no sin, but now they've seen and also hated both me and my father. These works were the works that you'd expect the promised Messiah to do, works that only God himself could do. So the lame walk, the blind see, deaf here, the mute can speak. These are the conditions of the millennial kingdom in which our diseases will be healed and we will live uh, in harmony in a, in a beautiful environment. He's saying, having seen these works, you should have been able to recognize that I am God come in the flesh as I have declared to you. No one else has done these. They've hated me, they've hated their, my father, but this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. This is Psalm 69. They hated me without a cause. They love darkness rather than light. And their sin is irrational in the sense that it is counter to everything that God has said is true about us. Before we begin to think that this is so overwhelming that we'll never be able to love one another as he has loved us or be able to show the love of Christ to unbelievers who hate us, he promises us the gift of the Holy Spirit to personally indwell us. He closes the passage in verses 26 and 27 by saying, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, 
the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. We will have confirmation that Jesus is who he says he is as we are indwelt by his Spirit. We will be encouraged and not frightened. We will be given the words to speak. We will be given leading from the Spirit as to where to go. Uh, You could see Peter and John in the early chapters of Acts after healing the lame man and being beaten, knowing what to say because the Spirit was upon them. You can watch Paul planning a missionary journey, uh, thinking he's going one place and being redirected by the Holy Spirit to go to another place because the Holy Spirit has a plan as to how we would serve him. We should be flexible in this way as the Lord leads us where he would have us to go. He will testify of me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Some splinters within Christianity think that uh, we can just be contemplative, uh, we can be like monks, we can be off on our own and aloof and don't have to be interacting with the world and it can be all about us and focused on our personal development. You don't actually see that in the scripture. You see that we're to be in the world, active in the world, loving the world through the empowerment of God himself. We will be his witnesses because we can testify of what the Lord has done. Many of us today are afraid to speak up to other people because we think that if they ask a question that we do not know, that we will be embarrassed. And so we say, because I can't think of the answer to every possible question, I feel like I should just be quiet. Because of postmodernism, most unbelievers are not so interested in our apologetic arguments as they are interested in our personal testimonies of how God has affected us. And these are not subject to difficult questions. These are subject to our willingness to speak about how the Lord has changed our lives and how the Lord has touched us personally and how the Lord has benefited us, and the hope that we have now, and the joy that we have now, and the lack of fear that we have now. This is because of the Spirit's involvement in our lives. And so, as we think back through his exhortations, he's saying, love one another, and Jesus' sacrificial love of laying down his life for his friends is our standard. Love one another to the point of laying your life down for him. He says, obey my commands, which is to show love to one another, but know the Father's plan. I chose you for a specific plan. Follow the Father's plan. It is to bear fruit, and you'll bear fruit in various ways in various places, but you won't be able to do it on your own. You need to ask for help. And so he says, whatever you ask in the Father in my name, he will give to you. Then he warns us that the world hated him before he hated us, so we shouldn't be so surprised and to realize that part of their hatred is that their sin is exposed for what it really is. We show them the ignorance that they have and the way in which they lie to themselves trying to cover up their sin. We speak the truth. We speak what God says. We tell them what the Scripture says from the Holy Spirit himself. And then we don't do this in our power. We do this in the power of the Holy Spirit. The helper comes, he will testify of us, 
of him, and he will bear witness through us as we minister to one another. As we read through this upper room discourse and as we go through uh, the various teachings that Jesus gives to his disciples, uh, we realize how clear he was to them. And we realize how important it is for us to understand these most basic essentials. And so we have our task set right before us. We need to ask ourselves, if he was willing to humble himself to get down on the floor and wash his disciples' feet, in what way would he have me love others and so be a channel of his love to minister to others? Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for the clearness of your word, and we thank you for the love of your son. How true it is that he was willing to sacrifice himself, die in our place, paying for our sins to make it possible for you to forgive us. Oh, Father, in gratitude, teach us to love as you have loved us. Teach us the humility that we've seen in the person of Christ. And help us to be willing to call you and ask you for the help that we need. Ask you for the guidance we need. And lean upon the ministry of your spirit. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.